Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Laura Boudreaux, an assistant professor in the economics division of Columbia Business School, and Ada Gonzalez-Torres, assistant professor in the economics department of Ben-Gurion University of Negev. We'll be discussing their new paper, Monitoring Harassment in Organizations, which they co-authored with Sylvain Chasson and Rachel Heath. Ada linked the paper in the show notes for the episode. Laura, Ada, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having us here. We're very happy to be discussing this research with you today. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for the invitation. I saw this paper. I was really excited about the empirical strategy that you used to investigate harassment within organizations. To start things off, perhaps, I wondered if you could introduce the problem of harassment in organizations in the workplace, for example. What is harassment for one thing? How can it be detected? And what's the policy value in being able to detect harassment that does occur within organizations? The recent Me Too movement really elucidated that harassment is a serious issue for workers around the world, but also that it's an issue that we know very little about, in part because it's incredibly difficult to detect or to measure, both in terms of its magnitude and in terms of its nature. To what extent is it perpetrated by, say, serial harassers versus more common and one-off interactions? And the challenge to detecting harassment is related both to harassed individuals and witnesses of harassment being unwilling to come forward for reasons that we'll get into, but also to decision makers and organizations potentially not wanting to learn about their organization's harassment issues. In this research, we focus on the former harassed individuals and witnesses potentially not being willing to come forward with this information. But we do also think that the latter is an important concern. Now, the question of what the policy consequences or implications of harassment are is incredibly important and one that we do not yet have a good understanding of. In the economics literature, there's an emerging stream of work on the economic and social consequences of harassment. And this is a very new literature, so it's only providing so far somewhat limited lenses into these costs. But the evidence thus far suggests that harassment is extremely costly to victims, especially to women. It contributes to increased workplace segregation. And there's also been some documentation of channels or mechanisms through which it may also adversely affect firms performance, business competitiveness. Now, the latter is more of an open question because we really don't have much evidence on it. And there's also potentially economically, at least reasons why it may not contribute in certain ways to enhancing performance. So we certainly need more research here. But I think we are also learning that even outside of the workplace, harassment imposes important costs on society. So there's an emerging literature that also shows that harassment in public spaces, in public transit, 
has very large negative effects on women in particular in developing countries on their labor force participation and investments in their education. And so this is suggestive of really lifelong negative implications of the prevalence of harassment in our societies on our social and economic outcomes, in particular for women. But as I mentioned, this is really an emerging area of literature, and I hope that we'll continue to see much more work on this topic. There are really substantial social costs to harassment and, of course, individual costs for those who experience harassment. And it sounds like there's a lot of value in being able to identify it and interdict it and prevent it from occurring. And, of course, that leads to somewhat of a measurement problem. We need to be able to measure harassment occurring within organizations to address it. What are the barriers that researchers and organizations currently have to measuring the harassment that is occurring within organization? You note in the paper that harassment tends to be underreported. Why is that? And what are the policy consequences of underreporting or undermeasurement of harassment? A key challenge of measuring or detecting harassment is that individuals who experience or witness harassment are often unwilling to come forward due to concerns about retaliation or the reputational costs associated with doing so. Concerns about retaliation and reputational costs are especially relevant for an issue like harassment because often harassment cases may not be verifiable meaning that it may not be possible to prove with 100% certainty that someone was harassed, which just contributes to victims and witnesses' propensity to face retaliation or reputational costs when they come forward. Now, let's consider even a very well-intentioned organization with a governance system set up for reporting, investigating, and punishing harassment. Often, these types of systems require the person who's submitting a report to include personally identifying information in that report, maybe their name, their position in the organization, or their gender, things like that. Now, even when these systems are completely anonymous, if there are only a few individuals in the organization who have the relevant information about a harassment issue, the investigation and punishment process de facto very likely reveals their identities or a lot of information about who the likely informant is. And this means that individuals who come forward are not protected against retaliation or career damage due to making a report. In other words, it's extremely costly to come forward in many situations. And this is under even the ideal conditions In many organizations, it may be the case that the governance systems that are in place are not this strong, and leaks of the identities of individuals who make reports may happen even without this type of good faith investigation and punishment procedures in place. Now, of course, in this type of scenario, we think it's unlikely that anyone would be willing to come forward, and so the monitored or the measured harassment rates may be very low. With Some of that background information, and thank you for that, I'd like to talk about the study that you and your co-authors did. I wonder if you could tell me about the research questions that motivated the study, the design of the study. How did you go about building on existing literature and practice in the survey space? What was the setting of the study? Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. As I mentioned, fear of retaliation and reputational damage due to reporting is a key barrier. We believed it to be a key barrier. And in this type of context, 
economic theory predicts that providing plausible deniability through what we refer to as garbling, which I will explain more, or adding noise to reports of harassment can improve information transmission. And this is a key motivation for this project. Now, what do I mean by garbling? What we mean in this project is very simple. So imagine I'm taking a survey about my experience of workplace harassment, and the survey asked me if I had experienced harassment. Now, let's say if I say yes, the survey records a yes. But if I say no, let's say one out of every five times, the survey randomly flips my no to a yes. And the other four out of five times, it records my no as such. Now, what this means is that in the record, there are going to be some individuals who are recorded as saying that they were harassed because they actually experienced harassment. And some individuals who are recorded as saying that they were harassed because they were randomly assigned by the survey system to do. And this provides a degree of plausible deniability to those individuals who submitted that sensitive answer saying that they were harassed. Now, it's important clearly that there's common knowledge that this is how the survey system works. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. But even in the worst case scenario where that record were to be leaked, one could not infer from the record whether those individuals who are recorded as saying yes were the ones who said yes or the ones who were randomly assigned by the system. And this is exactly how we are going to implement garbling in this project. Now, this idea is not new. It was originally proposed by Warner back in 1965 in the context of social science surveys. But more recently, our collaborator, Sylvain, and one of his collaborators, Gerard Padre Miguel, brought this idea into an organizational setting by showing theoretically that garbling can improve information transmission even when an organization takes an action based on reports. So for example, if submitting a report could lead to an investigation based on that report. Now, motivated by this possibility, we wanted to test the impact of providing survey respondents with plausible deniability about submitting a sensitive report using what we refer to as hard garbling. And by hard, we mean that the garbling is imposed by the survey system itself on reporting of harassment. Now, hard with emphasis because I want to contrast that to the existing literature on indirect survey methods, which uses what we refer to as soft garbling, in which a survey respondent themselves adds noise to their report. For example, a surveyor may give a respondent a die to privately roll And they are then instructed to answer a more sensitive question or a less sensitive question based on the value of the die that they roll. And they roll that die privately so the researcher doesn't know which question they were assigned to answer. Now, there are issues with these types of soft garbling systems that make them less useful in an organizational setting when you actually want to use the data from the survey to make decisions and take actions. And we're happy to elaborate on these drawbacks of these existing indirect survey systems in the context of organizations, if desirable. Now, in addition to hard garbling, 
we wanted to test two approaches to encourage reporting by reducing the perceived likelihood that a report may be leaked. So in particular, we were interested in testing the impact of what we call rapport building or taking time to build trust with survey respondents in a natural but pre-specified, pre-planned manner. And finally, we're interested in increasing the anonymity of report by removing team-level identifying information and understanding how these two survey design features, so rapport building and removing team-level identifying information, affects a respondent's willingness to report harassment. All three of these survey design features have trade-off, which I'm sure Ada will dive into more. The goal of our research is to understand these trade-offs and the value in terms of the information gain that these methods may provide. We also want to use, if we find that one or more of these methods increases respondents' willingness to report harassment, we want to use the improved survey data to estimate policy-relevant statistics of harassment to guide decision-making in organizations. In particular, answers to questions such as how prevalent is harassment? What share of employees is responsible for the damage? How isolated are victims across teams? These questions are crucial for identifying appropriate policy responses to eradicate harassment, but without accurate measurement of harassment are otherwise not going to be informative. I also want to mention, so the context that we conduct the study in is in collaboration with a large Bangladeshi apparel producer. And the firm's senior management was interested to collaborate because it wanted to improve the performance of its HR management system. And it was concerned that it may have had a harassment problem, but that the decision makers at the very top of the organization may only be aware of the tip of the iceberg of this problem. And so in collaboration with the producer, we conducted a phone-based survey experiment with 2,245 workers at two of its plants. And finally, I just want to mention that everything that we're talking about today in terms of the study in accordance with best practice in social science was pre-registered on the American Economic Association's randomized control trial registry, and it was also IRB approved. So with that background on the study, I wondered if you could talk to us about some of your results at a high level. And you mentioned that harassment has a particularly profound effect on women who experience harassment. So I wondered if you found gender differences in your results and if you have any suggestions for what might be driving those gender differences or what the mechanisms of some of these treatments might be in terms of the results that you got. Sure. I'm going to first make it more explicit, the policy relevant statistics that we're interested in before I go to the results and then discuss the differences by gender that we find. In the paper, we're interested in estimating set policy relevant statistics of harassment that guide the decision making about organization level responses to harassment. And we're mainly interested in three types of statistics. So first is the share of workers who have been victimized. And this matters because it helps a firm understand how many resources to dedicate to this problem. Secondly, we're interested also in understanding what is the share of problem managers or managers who have harassed at least one person in their team. And this also is a relevant statistic because if it's only a few bad apples doing most of the damage, then you can investigate those individuals and potentially fire them. However, if it's 
most managers who are misbehaving, then we need to do something else. So for example, we could start investigating the most egregious cases and then hopefully expect a trickle-down effect on the less egregious cases for managers misbehaving. And finally, the other statistic that we're interested in is understanding the share of managers with at least K victims. So where we consider values going from. So managers with at least one victim, two victims up to the total team size. So this is important because it helps us understand on one hand whether we can establish other systems that would help coordinate reports of different victims, which would be more likely to be the case if there are several victims within one team. But it also helps us prioritize certain teams if those are case, more egregious cases. And as I said, we're interested in these statistics, but to actually get at those, we don't have the true workers' experience of harassment. And so instead, we estimate these based on the reports, which are based on an experiment. And we motivate the experiment's design with a simple quantitative framework for a worker's decision to report harassment. And in the model, we consider deterrence to reporting, such as specifically of retaliation and reputational costs from reporting. And then a worker's decision will depend on the expected magnitude of these costs and the likelihood of the worker's report being leaked, where obviously this likelihood is a perceived likelihood because this data is not going to be leaked. And so in the experiment, we use hard garbling to use this cost, this expected retaliation and reputational costs that workers may face from reporting. And we do this by randomly assigning survey respondents to a survey module on their experience of harassment by their supervisor, in which they are directly asked about their experience, or on the contrary, we use hard garbling, as explained by Laura before, to ask them about this experience. In experiment, we also consider two other treatments. One is rapport building, and then the other is removing team-level identifying information which again is to reduce the worker's perceived likelihood of their report being leaked. And Laura already explained rapport building, but rapport building also comes at a cost to an organization potentially of developing the rapport building scripts, training the survey enumerators, and also allocating extra survey time to the rapport or build trust. On the other treatment arm that we talked about was removing team level information or basically not asking about team level information, such as who is their supervisor or in which team they're working. And this comes up the cost that then the report is less informative for the firm because then they would not be able to know which managers are misbehaving to a greater extent. In this research, we're also interested in understanding to what extent these treatments complement or substitute for each other, whether they have larger effects when they're combined, or if they have smaller effects, maybe when they're combined. And finally, we're looking at three types of harassment. In particular, we're looking at threats, physical harassment, and sexual harassment by a worker's direct supervisor. It's also important to mention that instead of asking about those labels, we ask whether workers have experienced specific behaviors that then actually classify it as each of these three outcomes that I mentioned. Andrew, you then asked me also about the results. So I'll mention first the results in terms of the average impacts of experimentally varying the survey design on the three outcomes. First, in terms of hard garbling, we observed that hard garbling dramatically increases reports, especially of the most sensitive 
behaviors. So in particular, we see that the reports of sexual harassment increase by almost 270%. So almost three times the baseline reporting rate, which is low at baseline of 1.8%. Physical harassment also increases by a similar magnitude of almost 290% from a baseline reporting rate of also quite low of 1.5% of the workforce reporting physical harassment and threats, which is a bit less sensitive comparatively compared to the other behaviors. The reporting rate increases by almost half from a baseline reporting rate, which is a bit higher, almost 10%. And these effects I'll discuss later, but they're, if anything, a bit larger for men. In terms of rapport building, we observe weak positive effects, which are mainly driven by women, in particular on the reporting of sexual harassment. And interestingly, in terms of removing team-level information, the effects that seem somewhat positive are not statistically significant. And finally, we find suggestive evidence that each of these survey designs that aim to increase plausible deniability and reduce reputational costs, we have suggestive evidence of complementarity between each of these survey methods. Finally, I'll talk about gender differences. So I mentioned some of them, but if we look at the baseline reporting rates for men and women, they're quite different. And obviously, we cannot discern whether this is due to actual differential incidences of harassment between sexes or just differential differences in terms of their willingness to report it. Now, with this caveat, we see that men are more than twice as likely to report threats. So 18 percent for men compared to eight percent for women and men are almost five times as likely to report physical harassment compared to women 4.4 percent compared to one percent and women are more likely to report sexual harassment somewhat so 1.8 percent compared to 1.5 percent for men i told you about the differences by sex in terms of the baseline reporting rates and next i'll explain how the treatment effects vary by gender. So we see that hard gargling actually is the effect of hard gargling on the reporting rates is larger for men, both in levels and relative to the baseline reporting rates compared to women. However, we cannot, the differences are not statistically significant except for the case of threatening behavior where we do see that hard gargling is more likely to increase of reports for men compared to women. Then we observe also differences by sex in terms of the treatment effect for rapport building. So as I mentioned before, the small positive effect that we observe in terms of rapport building increasing reports is driven by women, in particular for sexual harassment. In contrast for men, we see a somewhat negative effect so it seems to have backfired for men. And we believe that this is possibly because all our survey numerators were women. And in this context, it may be that men felt less comfortable with sharing their experiences with the numerators who actually spent more time in conversation with them building rapport. In terms of removing team level information there, we don't observe differences by gender. Could you talk about the policy implications of your study or the practical implications? Does this study perhaps suggest some improvements to the way that monitoring of harassment within organizations occurs? What should we take from that? Let's first discuss the policy implications for the particular firm that we study. And then I'm happy to talk more about the policy implications beyond this particular firm. 
So Ada mentioned three policy-relevant statistics of harassment that we were interested in estimating if we found that one of our treatments increased reporting. And as Ada explained, we see very large treatment effects of reporting by the hard garbling intervention. And so we compare the harassment rate that the producer, this apparel firm, would detect under the direct mechanism to the harassment rate that they would detect under the garbled mechanism for each of the three types of harassment. As I'm sure you might expect, the reporting rates are substantially higher when measured using the hard garbling method, especially for the more sensitive types of harassment. And so the takeaway here is that harassment is meaningfully more widespread than standard surveys would suggest. And so this means that addressing harassment may have a much more positive impact on overall employee welfare than previously available data would lead one to believe. And it's also important to mention that it's not only women who would benefit from eradicating harassment, but our data also suggests that men would also benefit from this type of policy intervention. Now, turning to the two team-level statistics of harassment, So the share of managers who've harassed at least one worker, which gives us a sense of how widespread harassment is in this organization, we find that harassment is widespread across teams. So about two-thirds of the teams have at least one worker who has been threatened, about a quarter have at least one worker who has been physically harassed, and about 40% have at least one worker who has been sexually harassed. Finally, we find that victims are relatively isolated within teams. So while many teams have at least one worker who has been harassed, this share drops off quite a bit when considering the share of teams that have at least two workers who've been harassed. So it goes down to about between 10 to 15 percent for threatening behavior, just under 4 percent for physical harassment, and just over 3 percent for sexual harassment. And so what these statistics tell us is that in this particular firm, harassment, one, it's quite widespread, but it's occurring at a somewhat moderate intensity. And so a policy of, say, firing those bad apple managers who are harassing their workers, it's unlikely to be a viable solution for this firm. If this firm wants to eradicate harassment, it's very likely that it will need to change the behavior of its existing managers. Now, these are the policy implications that we draw for this particular firm. And while these particular patterns of harassment are specific to this firm, we do think that there are some much broader policy implications. In particular, I think that our finding that lack of plausible deniability causes severe underreporting of harassment very likely extends to many other firm and organizational settings. And as a consequence, I think it's very likely the case that, generally speaking, the welfare gains of policy interventions that aim to mitigate harassment are much larger than we would conclude based on currently available data or the types of data that we typically have access to under status quo reporting systems that many organizations and data collection agencies implement today. 
Further, I think in many settings, it's not obvious that in all settings, both men and women are impacted by harassment. We see in our setting that both sexes are impacted, although in, in very different ways by different types of harassment. And so we may underestimate the extent to which interventions that aim to eradicate harassment benefit women, but also men. Finally, I think that our project underscores the need for much more systematic evidence on the nature of harassment. We really know very little about workplace harassment in broadly speaking. One kind of example of this is that the Me Too movement brought to light very often serial perpetrators of harassment, such as Harvey Weinstein, which may have blessed many of us, at least with the impression that harassment is typically perpetrated by serial harassers. I think in this project, we show that really you need very rich data to actually be able to characterize the nature of harassment in organizational settings, the extent to which it may be perpetrated by, say, serial harassers versus maybe more common to come up in in more isolated occurrences. And these answers to these types of questions are really crucial both within organizations and within society for understanding the types of policy interventions that are needed in order to eradicate harassment. And I do really hope that we will have much better data being generated on harassment and much better evidence to guide policymaking. Are there any key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this interview or from the paper? Sure. I'm happy to start off here. And then maybe if Ada wants to chime in. One way that garbled data from surveys such as ours could be used is to target interventions that aim to reduce the prevalence of harassment and to target those interventions in a somewhat noisy way. In other words, the data that a decision maker gets from a survey that uses garbling to ask sensitive questions is going to be a data set that has a share of workers who are coded as responding yes because they reported being harassed and a share of workers who are coded as responding yes because they were randomly assigned by the survey mechanism. And so in principle, an organization could take that noisy data and try to target an intervention that aims to reduce the harassment behavior toward a group that are the more likely, say, perpetrators of harassment. So say that those sensitive questions were about harassment by a manager then the organization could take the list of managers whose names appear in that list of yeses or whose names are tied to that list of yeses and then target an intervention such as, say, sensitivity training or a more thorough annual review or kind of soft interventions of this type of nature or kind of of appropriate severity given the noisiness in the data that try to encourage better behavior. And you could think about implementing this type of governance system. And now clearly it's very important that everyone in the organization know that this is how the system is set up and that some names you know, of managers will appear just by chance, by randomly due to this garbling mechanism, while others will be true yeses in the survey data with these caveats. We think based on economic theory that there's reason to believe that When implemented in a repeated way over time, this type of system can contribute to reducing the incidence of harassment. And we, in this study, 
see our findings as what I would call a crucial first step in terms of getting workers to be willing to come forward to report harassment. So first, you need to bring information to light and then how to use that information to scale up enforcement action along the lines that I just described using this kind of noisy targeting system, we think is a very important direction for future research. And we ourselves would love to do more work on this question. So I will mention as a methodological implication of the study that while the particular patterns of harassment that we find and the policy implications that we draw may to somewhat be specific to this firm, the methods are general and broadly applicable. In particular, the results that hard gargling dramatically improves the detection of harassment in real-world organizational settings, even in a low-skilled environment in a developing country context. And also the fact that in this paper, we also conduct validity tests to demonstrate that respondents understand more complicated hard gargling mechanisms. And we think that in general, this hard gargling method is a promising survey method for organizations that are concerned about many types of misbehavior or workplace issues, not only harassment, due to underreporting of these types of issues. And we also think that this type of survey method can be useful in social science surveys on sensitive topics, specifically or especially in situations in which respondents have a certain level of trust in the organization that is conducting the survey because they need to trust the hard gargling method. And then finally, we also think that the toolbox that we provide for estimating TML statistics of harassment can it can guide decision making and this is very general. So we would be excited actually to see the system implemented across settings and help detect issues that are underreported. Our guests today have been Laura Boudreau, an assistant professor in the economics division of Columbia Business School and Ada Gonzalez-Torres, Assistant Professor in the Economics Department at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. We've been discussing their paper, Monitoring Harassment in Organizations, which they co-authored with Sylvana Chesson and Rachel Heath. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Laura, Ada, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.